Cheating is always considered a big issue in higher education, but this past week it just got cranked up another notch into in the public consciousness with the college admission scandal. And I'm sure your news feeds have been full of this uh, for all our listeners that are anyway connected to higher education, even those who are not, because it's a scandal, quote unquote, that people are very deeply concerned about. Basically, Rich, powerful people in the U.S. realize they can use their money to cheat and bring their mediocre kids into elite halls of higher education. Well, particularly, there was this Full House actress. I don't watch Full House, so that meant nothing to me. But Felicity Huffman, that used to be part of Desperate Housewives, are part of this group that were willing to hand over tens of thousands of dollars to cheat the system, which have included everything from pretending their children have learning disabilities so they have more time on tests, faking that they were athletes so they could get into Yale. What else did they cheat on? I think for me, the biggest ones were the act- were pretending to be in sports yeah. and taking pictures like in front of sports equipment <laughs> so that admissions officers thought you were at a sports team when you'd never done the sport in your life. That was for me the biggest one. Yeah, and parts of the, I think the affidavit or this whole project that was called uh, Operation Varsity Blues had some really fascinating parts to it because some of the student students or the the kids of these rich people clearly didn't know what was going yeah, on definitely. and they uh, and some of the parents even like I guess were caught on camera or whatever recorded saying that like oh my I think my kid is suspicious and is getting really worried how do I hide this or in some cases it's even sounded like the students uh, were are actually uh, really good students and so one can only imagine like the sense of betrayal. There's that one kid that also I think was had some sort of infection or something like that. So he didn't want to fly to the SAT, um, the fake SAT center, but she forced him to anyways. Oh, wow. That one I didn't hear about. Yeah, I think but he I had tonsillitis remember... or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I do remember one of the late night hosts, obviously they had a huge amount of enjoyment yeah. out of this one, saying that it's honestly the worst way for a parent for a child to feel like how a parent thinks about you if you're, you know, in any way academically focused. Your parent clearly doesn't think that you can get in on your own merit. They have to kind of go behind your back and try and get you in some sleazy way. Yeah, I feel bad for that kid. But then there's the other girl, the the daughter of the Full House actress at USC who is now a vlogger and has been making tons of money, had apparently a Sephora collaboration and... Mm -hmm. She seemed very suspicious. I believe that she was on the yacht of the college president or something like that when the scandal broke, so they had to, like, come back to our harbors. Boo-hoo. Yeah. There was also something that same girl was, uh, that's Lori Lerland's daughter, yeah. saying that um, she was never really interested in going to university. She just wanted to party. And I think with all those comments compounded with the amount of effort that her mom mm-hmm. did to kind of get her kid into college, I think it just highlighted the kind of rich kid, super full of... Well, I don't even know how you would explain it. Basically, just like the rich kid getting everything they want. Even yeah, if they're completely entitled. Yeah. yeah. Like, they, um, get, they get everything, including things that they don't even ask for. Yeah. Like, and from her videos, doesn't even really want. Mm-hmm. Kind of just wants to go party. Isn't yeah. interested in academic rigor, so. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's our quick recap of the college admission scandal. Here's for another episode. Oh, the first one of this year, actually, from PH Divas. I'm Dr. Zain Yao. I am based in London, the United Kingdom. And I am the humanity side of PhD Divas. And today I, I have a very special guest on air, my friend Mariam Tarawa. Hello. Um, do you want to say something about yourself, Mariam? Um, sure. I guess I am also based in London and I am also working at a university here. I am based at SOAS. It is the School of Oriental and African Studies. But yes, no you heard that, that right. You heard that right, yeah, Oriental. No one says that anymore. They just say SOAS. And I am on the Ambitious Future Scheme, which is a graduate scheme that it 
focuses on project-based work in universities, so I move around different parts of the university and do project work in different departments. Yeah, I thought you were a book book now. Yeah, so I'm actually seconded, which is a British term, apparently. What is, okay. Which means that, like, I am a SOAS employee, but they've kind of put me on loan uh-huh. to Birkbeck for six months, so I'm working in the research office there for six months, mm-hmm. which is really cool, super different from human resources, which I was doing at SOAS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, Miriam has, I think, a u- unique perspective on talking about differences between UK and uh, US higher education, also with, I guess, both formal and informal knowledge of, well, here they call what EDI, which is a quality, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. Yeah because of some of the things that you've been working at Brookback and SOAS. But what was your prior educational history? Perhaps that also helps. So, yeah. So I did my undergraduate degree in the U.S. I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is a historically all-women's institution. And they have a really very strong focus on social justice and kind of the equality, diversity, and inclusion aspect of social mm-hmm. justice. And then I did one year as a visiting student at Oxford, um, which I think started my whole compare-contrast that I like to do with the American and the British system. And my dad teaches at Yale, so w- one of the universities oh, yes. involved but, <laughs> in the scandal. And what, was it the fake rowers? Was that the... They suspended a sports director, I think it was, okay. something like that. Yeah. So it is interesting to hear his perspective and see what he lives in an American private university context Mm -hmm. Um, and then also working at a university myself in the UK I kind of you know and as a minority student myself I feel like there's a lot to think about yeah oh and also another one that Miriam forgot to mention which is like the reason why we met is because we were both at Cornell together yes but you were a high school student then I was. and I I knew her father Professor Shawkat Tarawa who I guess was the first faculty member who actually treated me like as a friend and colleague like right off the bat as opposed to a student which I really appreciated and I think it was I was the first guest lecturer they had for this Dr. T project thing but that's another oh thing. nice yeah. oh I didn't very know proud that. of myself oh love before it. any of the actual faculty love it yeah love it but anyways when I moved to London he's like my daughter is gonna be here you should be <laughs> friends with my daughter <laughs> you said that to me as well <laughs> yeah uh yeah so it's cool because I feel like you and me have both lived through what uh, two institutions together. Mm-hmm. We're learning the UK system together. We both kind of started around the same time. And we're both seeing a lot of differences. Yeah. So, and I think that that is part of what makes this conversation really interesting because I think in general in the UK, it's been clear to me that there tends to be a disavowal of certain problems of the particularly American ones. Yeah. So even though it seems like, oh, this is a scandal and we can get into like a scandal for whom and who is surprised or not surprised, like, it's not like there isn't stuff going on here either. Absolutely. And yeah. I think what happens is because the U.S. is just a bigger, like, pool, um, we end up talking a lot more about the things that are wrong with the American system, whereas there are the same issues that we're dealing with here. It's just that in with this government, um, with the U.K. government, that is to say, the way they handle issues of race and minority mm-hmm. are very different from the way they're handled in the American context. Yeah. Um, do you want to give us a breakdown of the sort of terms used? And- yeah. So, I mean, this was really confusing to me when I started. But so in the U.S., one of the things that people talk about a lot is um, they, th- they kind of throw around words like quota and they throw around words like, you know, a minority student getting in w- at the expense of um, a white student, things mm-hmm. like that. And there is a certain amount of 
truth to the fact that a quota system is used in the U.S., and they call it affirmative action. And it is super controversial. Everyone wants to talk about it. Um, but the kind of key thing about that is that it's legal, for mm-hmm. now, anyway. Um, whereas in the U.K., affirmative action is kind of called positive discrimination. So kind of just already in the words, you can hear that it's a negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is illegal. And it's been illegal since 2010. Mm. So you cannot, what I guess you can't prioritize any one individual based on traits that were historically discriminated against. Mm. And I think it, it creates a bit of a problem, right? Because I think the whole, the argument for affirmative action is to say there have been historic inequalities and we are going to do a different kind of inequality to balance the playing field. Yeah. And it's unfair, but it was unfair before as well. And we're all kind of living with this in an attempt to create a more just and equal world. Yeah. Whereas in the British system, so as the idea is like things were unequal before, but now we're going to pretend that everything's fine. I, well, that's a great, the really cynical version of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they use something called positive action. Okay. So an example of positive action is, for example, if you're hiring someone on the job description, you say, we quote unquote, welcome and actively seek applications from candidates from diverse backgrounds. Okay. That's the end of it. The end. Okay, like that is what they're, they're basically saying actively to someone who might not necessarily apply for that job. Mm. We welcome you. But then when it comes to the actual recruiting and selecting process, they treat everyone the same. Okay. Right? So it's, it's a very, very different approach. And what it does is it, under the Equalities Act, is, is it prevents the kind of traditional, air quotes, discrimination against any group including the majority group. So I have, I think we can all think of the issues that there would be with this, just like we can think of the issues of what affirmative action creates. But that is what they do here. Well, I I know that you recently saw a play that sort of dramatized the current state of elite admissions. So maybe that might be a good way to segue into talking about some of those issues before we return talking about the scandal in particular. Yeah. So it actually started in the U.S. It's called originally, Admissions. Um, And it's a play by a guy named, I think his name is Josh Harmon, something like that. And he wrote a play that delves into these issues of diversity candidates, Hmm. but not at a university level, at a private prep school. Oh, okay. So it's kind of the same idea, but in a slightly different context. Um, And the kind of the story goes that this woman is the director of admissions at this very elite private Northeastern Academy, And her job is to increase the percentage of diverse, quote-unquote, students to the school. And it's, like, at some pitiful number, like 8%, and she wants it to go up to 20% or something like that. And then all of that kind of gets thrown into whack when her son, she's white, her Mm. son is white, decides that he wants to give up his place so that the money is then used to to have a diverse student in his spot. Mm. And that kind of, it basically throws her completely out of whack because then maternal instinct kicks in and she want, and the, the kinds of questions that the author is asking is like, where do you draw the line? Parents making excuses and exceptions for their own children, mm. which is exactly what we see in the scandal. Because I can guarantee you a lot of the parents in that scandal would say as a general rule that they think that this would be wrong, but for their own kid, yeah, they think that they need to make special dispensations for them. 
Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting piece. It started off in New York and it moved here. And it's a really good introduction to the debate mm-hmm. of diversity and affirmative action in the American context. Uh-huh. And so what I think is... Uh, well, one thing that we need to discuss then is like... So we've been talking about all these different measures that have been put in place to uh, rectify structural inequality, but let's talk about the baseline uh, system in place, which has to do with the, the phrase meritocracy. Like this sort of presumption that somehow like um, these measures are doing things that are additional or um, changing what was seen, was seen as sort of like a universal unmarked process of just students applying based on merit. Uh, what do you have to say about that? I feel that? like it's, it's self a fallacy. Yeah. Right? It's impossible to have that. Because, I mean, if you just think about the admissions processes in both countries, there are interviews, there is the quality of the writing mm-hmm. um, of personal essays, there, you, I guess the indirect things are like, you know, your grades and your test scores and things like that. But it's impossible to separate the person from the metrics, mm. right? And so I think people, I find it really hard when people say, you know, I got there because I deserved it and I was smart enough and I looked good when that in itself is designed mm-hmm. right and the admissions officers are looking for f- specific things and you have to be in a space where someone is telling you this is what they're looking for mm-hmm. right so it, it, it's kind of a rigged system either way yeah like regardless yeah like, I remember coming across that like meritocracy was as a word was originally coined to be like a, I think a dystopian or like parodic word in and oh, of itself no. And so it's sort of funny the way that it's been taken up, like, in a completely unironic way. Yeah. It, and I, I just think that it's just fundamentally wrong to say things like, you know, I deserve mm-hmm. when you're dealing in, with these kinds of admissions processes. Because deserving is kind of has nothing to do with the whole process. Yeah. It has to do with how you look. Mm-hmm. Do you look competitive enough against these other candidates? Yeah. Right? Um and I guess we could think of some examples, like, say, like, some kid has really uh, impressive extracurriculars because they, like, hiked Mount Everest as opposed to a kid that, like, worked at McDonald's for the summer. Yeah. Like, clearly one being a marker of privilege, but, of course, like, it just looks that much more impressive as opposed to someone who had to, like, make ends meet or help 100%. out the family. Yeah. And I also feel like, especially when you're talking about the really elite schools, there's always this joke about, you know, you're not going to get into Stanford unless you, you know, opened your own company or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, the 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 statistics to get in have become so or i guess i guess the 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 rate of admission is so low mm. they're beginning to look for completely crazy things like yeah. yes have you climbed kilimanjaro or whatever <laughs> to um to get people in yeah and and i think that's kind of what this they used to i mean they still talk about this idea of holistic review right and whether or not the candidate this is all american right mm. whether or not the candidate fulfills the criteria of being a holistic well-rounded person that will quote-unquote be successful here mm-hmm. um I don't know. For me, it seems like that's almost out the window now because everyone has pros and cons to be... If your grades are good enough, Mm -hmm. there are not very many things that you can do to prove that you're, quote-unquote, better or -hmm. not better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, How many instruments can you play? Yeah, it's crazy stuff, isn't it? It's really crazy stuff, and it just... It it creates this insane rat race in high school when you're, like, 16, Mm -hmm. 17, 18 to do completely insane things to get into university and it's just like 
when I think about it, I'm, I'm not surprised that parents are going to insane measures to get their yeah. kids into school, right? And I say it's not an explanation. I mean, it's not an excuse, but it is definitely an explanation as to why yeah. they're doing it. Like in the States, I've heard about what people trying to get their kids into like elite nursery schools. It's like that that intense. But I guess one thing also is for the UK context is like the geography of which schools you go to is very much determines the quality of your education. So, yes. so the public-private divide, even though like they use slightly different terminology across the Atlantic, uh, very much determines educational outcomes and career outcomes and life outcomes. 100%. And I was really lucky because Cornell mm. actually spends a huge amount of time and effort making sure that its public school is really robust mm. because that is actually how they attract faculty with families. That makes sense. And so I was really lucky. I went to the only high school in the town, and it was really good, and it was a public high school. And the teachers were very prepared to help all of their students get into the best university they could get into or do whatever else they wanted to do if they weren't interested in going down that route yeah if you hear like inner city schools in new york and things like that where they basically they don't even have basic foundational things needed to get a student into a university right Mm -hmm. i remember when i was an undergrad um i was volunteering in um schools in Philadelphia because the Philadelphia school district fired all of its guidance counselors. What? Yeah. So they, one of the students at Haverford, his name is Oscar Wang, I still remember, he created a, um, a men- basically a mentoring NGO kind of thing called Mentor for Philly. And what it did is that it basically dropped undergrads from Bryn Mawr and Haverford into these schools to help students apply to university because they had just lost my god their guidance counselors that's really so you literally don't have the resource that you need yeah literally you don't have guidance you literally don't have guidance exactly and so like things are desperate in some places Uh and the people who are suffering are obviously the poor school districts who have no choice but to lay off guidance counselors as opposed to laying off teachers Mm -hmm. right yeah It's just so interesting. Like, it just plays out on so many structural levels, but also like these coded behaviors. Like, I think in the UK, the way it manifests and something I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the way that accent is such an important marker. Oh, yeah. I guess one of my friends has said, like, whenever a British person meets another British person, it's definitely like an assessment of like poshness and feeling out the other person's poshness, but yeah. it's to do the accent, which, which schools they went to. And like, there's something about, I guess, they call them public schools, but they're like the elite schools, yeah, like Eaton and stuff like that. Private. Yeah, super expensive, and there's a, like a certain like demeanor that gets taught to these students, which gets read as a type of genius because they don't have to be as concerned about grades. Like it's sort of like sort of like the easy intelligence, being able to question things and be very confident. And so of course that's read as as a, a particular type of intelligence yeah. more so than maybe a student has to be like really scrappy and really like worry about fighting for each grade as opposed to being having a type of confidence of being in the source space and having a type of entitlement to take up discursive yeah. space as well. I teach um, SAT tutoring to, to British students and sometimes I go into these very elite schools mm-hmm. and it's palpable how different their mentality and also their attitude is towards everything right clearly there's a huge amount of wealth like you know you've got these students who are living in castles and have you know suits to go to class in and like this is serious like again we're we're in the uk like there's actual gentry that will be classes oh yeah absolutely yeah and so you know it almost feels like you just stepped into like the downton abbey version of the uk Mm. when you're in these schools and but, but that kind of trait and i think a lot of people now are are very wary of that because 
it's like you, you, you send a student to the school and they come out like boxed in this kind of way mm. and their their accent has changed and they carry themselves differently and they're obviously very intelligent because their teachers have so many resources to funnel at them to kind of get the best out of them um, and then they just snap into, you know, Oxford and Cambridge uh-huh. and then they end up as MPs and then they end up as Prime Minister and right, so it's like this kind of path that's hard to deviate off of if you're in it and also hard to enter if you're not so yeah like the way that pipelines if you even buy the pipeline metaphor work very differently here they seem even more restrictive like for example it's like i think most politicians have done one particular major they don't call them majors but like one particular major in oxford ppe what's ppe stand for politics philosophy and economics yeah but what like over 80 percent or some some absurd except Theresa May studied geography. Oh, oh breaking <laughs> interesting breaking the cycle. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it's the thing to if you want to be an MP, if you want to be in government, the thing to do is to go and study PPE at Oxford Cambridge because that is basically the course that prepares you to be a politician. Mm. Um, and I mean, my friend studied PPE. Um, I don't think that it prepares you to do anything. It gives you what an American <laughs> would consider a good liberal arts degree. Uh-huh. Right? It's not any better than, for example, someone doing geography. Yeah. Right? But it's the thing that people do. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know... I guess this is all to say, like, given the way that this, the system works on both sides of the Atlantic, it's kind of, like, not surprising. The admission scandal is not surprising is the point that we want to get at. I would say that when I was talking to my friends about it after it, I saw it on the news, I don't think anyone was surprised. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the U.S. In the U.K., people were shocked. Um, but in the U.S., people were like, uh, you know, I'm surprised this hasn't come out earlier. <laughs> Right? Like, this has been happening for ages. Yeah. And what's even crazier is that there are legal ways that people do this as well, right? I mean, the last time I I remember this coming up in the news was when people were questioning how Jared Kushner got into Harvard. Oh, yeah. It was like a $1.5 million donation or something. Right. And I also think, but I think that, like, realistically, the media has stayed away from questioning these kinds of things because a lot of private American universities are that private Mm. and they can decide if they want to admit one dumb student so they can get a 1.5 million dollars right that is a that is a business decision yeah right and admitting a couple of dumb kids isn't going to impact their brand Mm -hmm. whereas this scandal which is a systemic like our people are secretly admitting students who don't have X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. is worse because that does impact the brand, right? It's really clear that Jared Kushner got in yeah. for, because his family is wealthy, right? No one's hiding that, whereas this is hidden. And because it's hidden, it's it's much more of a, a hit to the brand. Yeah. And you said I was cynical earlier. Well, I'm sorry. Sometimes <laughs> no, no. I'm really cynical. I sometimes rant about these things. <laughs> no, no. That's why I wanted to have you on. Because, well, basically, I think I was messaging Miriam, and then she's like, I, I have this whole rant. I can email you. And she gave me this multi-paragraph thing, and I was like, you know, we should just talk about this. Yeah, I was. Just, I guess, like, when the scandal hit, I was so not surprised, but at the same time so annoyed, mm-hmm. because I've just been in this space of, like, admissions and BME. BME is um, Black Minority and... Black minority ethnic. ethnic. Sometimes yeah, it's also black, black, black Asian minority ethnic. Double B. Yeah, no, sorry, it's B A BAME. Oh, Sometimes, BAME. Yes, yeah, yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So because I don't know, just being in that space and then seeing this happen, and you're just kind of like down about mm-hmm. it, and you think, what do I do? Exactly. 
And I, I guess, like, it's also the other sad, funny, absurdist thing is, like, the system has, by its very nature, already been rigged for these rich kids. And yet 100%. they were still, they also need another system on top of that, right? Definitely. And I think the only way to deal with it is either deal work in this affirmative action slash positive discrimination mindset where you're just gonna have to accept that things aren't fair mm-hmm. for a while until they are or you change the admissions process mm. which is harder I can't think of a way like the UK does it in a completely kind of divorced way from the person it's only about your grades mm. and nothing else matters but, but, um, but there's interviews. But that's kind of more of an Oxford-Cambridge thing. Oh, we do them here, too. Oh, okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then there's that. That's the, I guess that's the one human aspect of it. But it's not about, like, extracurriculars and have you opened your own NGO and yeah. have you helped old lady crosses the street and, like, all this other stuff that's, like, completely irrelevant to your academic career. But, you know, there is an argument for keeping the holistic review of a mm-hmm. student because I suppose in the end the ideal is to pump out well-rounded individuals who are going to positively impact society. I guess that's the problem of like as soon as how do you make space for a qualitative assessment that doesn't doesn't immediately become quantified and become something that can be like taught and indexed and marketed and trained for right? Which brings up American SAT course classes, mm. right? I mean, the fact that some students can afford to have their parents pay thousands of dollars for them to do extremely well in the SAT. Um, and that's legal. That's not even going into parents paying someone else to do your SATs for oh, you. Oh, yeah, so that's part of it, too. <laughs> yeah. Fake test so, centers, fake test scores. Exactly, right? Fake facilities. So, but, you know, it's completely legal for your parent to set you up on a course that's $4,000 to teach you how to take the SAT mm. so that you do really well, right? Like that. Again, rigged system. And that goes all the way up until graduate, right? Yeah, so um, in, in the U.S. there's the GREs, which are awful. Never oh yes. want to do it again. I'm studying for them right now. Uh, it's just hurting me. Like, I'm glad that, well, Cornell English just announced that they're no longer requiring the subject test, at least. But in general, both the general GRE and two as well, I think, has very has been shown to have very little correlation to actual ability. Yes. It just becomes a very easy way to filter through applications, basically. Yeah. And to give ETS money. I, I resent so yeah. much. And not just ETS. I mean, like, all of these companies are getting money, like Kaplan and Princeton mm-hmm. Review and, like, Manhattan Prep. All these companies are making a killing. So industry. Yeah, off of, including me, actually, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I am teaching SAT yeah. to students in the UK. Yeah. And another thing that I, you know, that's really obvious when I'm teaching it to them is that they are, of course, at an inherent disadvantage, mm. right? They are competing against all of the American students in the U.S. in that particular year and all of the other international students around the world, right? And if you're not taught in an American system, the SAT kind of makes little sense, especially uh-huh. the verbal section. Yeah. Right? Why are you asking me these ridiculously random word choice questions that are meaningless to me? Yeah. I'm a scientist. Yeah. Right? So I think there are just many layers of not only inequality, but also just illogical national paradigms almost of language and I suppose yeah but in the U.S. I suppose like yeah if you have someone that grew up in you know a predominantly Spanish-speaking area having to take the SAT is going to be the same kind of nightmare Mm -hmm. as it is for you know a Chinese student that's in Shanghai wanting to take it as well for an opportunity to study in the U.S. so yeah (sighs) this is really 
really uplifting sign. I know, I know. <laughs> just so, well, but how about we turn to the positive? Do you, as a professional in oh. EDI, as they call, have any recommendations? I'm not a professional EDI. Or, you know, a, pro- just... a professional person who's been, or a person who spent a lot of life in, in different types of higher ed institutions. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I suppose when, from a British perspective, I think that a lot more needs to be done than use than the positive action way of things. And uh, that work is being done on that. I think it would be wrong to say that, like, no one is doing anything because that's just simply not true. So, but, like, for example, um, if you're in HR, making sure that all of your policies and procedures actually are inclusive mm. to equality, diversity, and inclusion practices, generally speaking, and, you know don't wait around to update those right like make a statement by doing that Mm -hmm. and showing that you're doing that and you know i think that a lot of committees and not only departments but just like professional service groups that work together are heavily biased in either color or gender Mm -hmm. and the really hard thing to do is to recognize that that has happened and to reshuffle, yeah. right? It's embarrassing, it's tense and awkward, but it's so vital to making structural changes across the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like as academics, we're trained about critical thinkers. Like we have to be able to turn that eye upon ourselves, which includes looking at our demographics and also questioning that it's not like our institutions or disciplines arose in some sort of platonic ideal. Like these yes. are, are founded on very particular histories, very particular structures. Um, UCL, for instance, being founded, uh, being closely tied to the history of eugenics, yay. Oh, wow. Yeah, Galton, Did not know that. Galton went here. And, oh, yes. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and there's like, you, like white supremacist eugenicist mm-hmm. conferences that were run here even a couple years ago. I also think um, that there has to just be, like, especially within higher education where you just have, it's unique because you have groups of highly, highly intelligent people all in a very small space. Mm-hmm. It, it means that I think we need to be doubly critical of ourselves Mm -hmm. and also kind of move past this kind of instinctive reaction to be defensive. Yeah. Right? And I think that's human nature. Um, But I think academia is known for being slow with its changes. Yeah. And part of that rests on this whole, like, idea of academics and people in the professional services who are hesitant to make changes because they immediately go to the defensive Uh and won't move forward until they are literally replaced by someone younger yeah i guess part of it's perhaps because when you're in academia and it being so hard to get a job like it's hard not to internalize meritocracy as a justification for why you're there as opposed to recognizing that Maybe you were just as good as all the candidates who weren't able to get jobs because that's sort of like terrifying. You need to have some sort of narrative logic to your life. I also don't think that like having an awareness of this kind of, I mean, people call it unconscious bias, right, is going to mean that you get fired, right? Or mean that, you know, your job is going to suddenly be at risk and you're going to be laid off or something, Mm -hmm. right? It just means moving forward, have an awareness of your position Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis everybody else. Yeah. Um, Just be aware yeah. Right? There is such a lack of awareness. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, it's shocking. Yeah. In this world, in it's, this day and age. Like, I guess for me, it's like the example is the, well, I can't be racist. And like the, 
Yeah. The way I think of it is like, well, structures are the racist things, but when we could be racist within them, mm-hmm. whether or not you're recognizing or not, uh, to me, that's like not so much the issue, but what do you do within it conscientiously to kind of combat the structures that have enabled that yep. and that we are complicit with? Admitting that you're complicit does not, like, somehow people are really afraid to admit that, I think. Yeah. And then if you can't admit that, then how can you actually make change? Yeah. And I think that's almost the hardest thing is to come to that realization. I remember when I was doing, we do yearly or bi-yearly unconscious bias training at SOAS. Mm. And the person, the moderator of that session is like, the hardest thing to kind of deal with is coming to the realization that you have bias because mm-hmm. everyone wants to think that they're objective and they're doing the best job that they can. Mm-hmm. When actually, if all of us come to the collective conclusion that we're all biased in different ways, we'll be so much more successful as a team. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. Also, I'd like to say, because sometimes I've been referred to people as someone woke that they know, like I get crap wrong a lot. And I've been very fortunate that I've had friends that sometimes are unflinchingly unafraid to call me out on it. Mm. And of course, it every time it is like sort of painful because it sort of shocks me because I'm like, I'm trying to do the best I can, but no, that's the wrong thing. Like I'm trying to like train, how can I, how can I listen to them? How can I realize the amount of effort and energy that went into the fact that they've confronted me about this? How can I apologize and truly try to make change in a way that doesn't just also erase the mistake, but also makes it visible so other people don't do that. Absolutely. And I think that's really hard. It's extremely hard. And I think a lot of people are so much more comfortable either like sweeping it under the rug or being defensive about it. And it's the natural human reaction mm-hmm. and working against that is so important. Final thoughts for our listeners? I don't think so. I think we kind of touched on a lot of the different structural issues that are affecting both students in the U.S. and the U.K. Ooh, so one phrase I found that I think is pretty good that sort of sums up higher education is the way that allows a plutocracy to mask itself as a meritocracy. That's deep. Mm. <laughs> I, I definitely took it from like the Atlantic or something from a number of years back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean... I think part of the reason that I chose higher education is because it's such a unique... Um, sector and it has the potential to make to basically be the leader in change yeah which it has done right you know student demonstrations and universities have literally Mm -hmm. started revolutions and I think with something like this which is more kind of under the radar not really Mm -hmm. like the forefront of everyone's strategic objectives we can actually do something that really makes a change in society yeah Um, i guess because we still see a lot of potential even though we know how messed up things are 100 percent, and that's not unique to he right it's It's like any structure everywhere you go 100 percent. yeah i'd also say for our listeners i highly recommend sarah ahmed's on being included where she analyzes diversity initiatives and the way that like it works with university pr the way it also saps the energy of people working on diversity I think that that's just some really great reading. But thanks a lot for joining me, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so cool. Yeah. I don't know. If, I mean, Zion hasn't mentioned it, but I was like positively geeked out when she said that she wanted to interview me. I couldn't even believe it. You're like, oh, Cap, you're like, Zion, I'm not cool enough. I know. I'm not. But yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Okay. Bye.